Amen. You all can go ahead and be seated. And as you're seated, go ahead and take out your Bibles. We're continuing our series that we've been in called Majoring in the Minors, where we are in the Minor Prophets. And we're finishing up the book of Micah this morning. So we're going to be doing Micah chapter 6 and 7. And while y'all are turning there, let's go before the Lord. And we'll ask the Lord to bless our time in his word and to speak to us. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you, Lord. We thank you for inviting us through Christ into your throne room, Father God, that we would be able to sit at your feet and praise and worship you, Father God. And Lord, as we open our Bibles to read from your word, we know that we continue in worship, Father God. And Lord, this is the time where we ask that you would speak to us the words that you know that we need to hear, Father God, the words that we need for our life to transform us. Lord, the words to make us more like your son. Speak to us now and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we've been looking at Micah, the theme of Micah comes from Micah 7:18, in which Micah uses a play on his own name, which means who is like God. Asking who is like our God. And we've been looking at the different ways in which our God is like no other. Because our God is a God who takes beauty from ashes. Who takes the mess in our life and allows us to have a message of what he can do. He takes the pain that we go through and it becomes a beautiful painting. That is our God. And so this morning, our last message from Micah, he's going to show how God is a God unlike any other in which he brings indictment because he is holy, he is just, but he doesn't stay within judgment because he also provides the light to salvation. And so the title of the message is From Darkness of Indictment to Light of Salvation. And I think we're all kind of familiar at different points in our life and different things that we go through in which our situation can have a bleak outlook. We can't see getting out of where we're at. We feel like we're in a deep hole that has no way out. We feel like it's a dark place. We, we're starting to not necessarily see the light of hope. We, we're, we're feeling trapped. And it's even more so, I think, when that situation could be something that we made for ourselves. Choices that we've made, things that we've done where we're like, well, I made my bed and now I have to lie in it. We're powerless to change it, right? None, none of us have any control over our circumstances. And we feel like our hands are tied. And sometimes we feel like when the judgment does come for the choice that we made, we're, we're, we know we're powerless to change it. And we've also experienced that maybe if we've ever been familiar with a court proceeding or maybe we've been in a court proceeding and you ever heard a judge proclaim these words? I understand your story. I see where you're at. My hands are tied by the law. There are certain sentences that the judges have to pass down because of the law. So Micah's third message as we open it up 
it's a message to Israel, to Judah, and it's a summary of what's been said before, but it's summed up now as a case before the court. And the court is in the court of the Lord, and his case is against his nation, and it's against his people. The third message is the culmination of that theme, who is like our God, in which he prophesies the judgment coming for their sins. But unlike earthly judges that are tied to the law, our God also proclaims the promise of his salvation. The desire is to invoke the people to endure what is to come while trusting in the Lord still, because who is like our God who will take us from the darkness of indictment to the light of salvation? And I believe that that's still a message for us this morning. I believe that God wants us to know that our situation can seem dire, it can seem dark, and and the enemy wants you to think that it's hopeless. But what God wants us to remember is that he is not a God like any other, that he is a God who can take that and change it completely because he's the sovereign one. So starting in Micah chapter six, it says, now listen to what the Lord is saying. Rise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your complaint. Listen to the Lord's lawsuit, you mountains and enduring foundations of the earth because the Lord has a case against his people and he will argue it against Israel. My people, what have I done to you or how have I wearied you? Testify against me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from that place of slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam ahead of you, my people. Remember what King Balak of Moab proposed, what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal so that you may acknowledge the Lord's righteous acts. What should I bring before the Lord when I come bow down before God on high? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the offspring of my body for my own sin? Mankind, he has told you, each of you, what is good and what it is that the Lord requires of you, to act justly, to love faithfulness, and walk humbly with your God. The voice of the Lord calls out to the city, and it is wise to fear your name. Pay attention to the rod and the one who ordained it. Are there still treasures of wickedness and a cursed short measure in the house of the wicked? Can I excuse wicked scales or bags of deceptive weights? For the wealthy of the city are full of violence and its residents speak lies. The tongues in their mouths are deceitful. As a result, I have begun to strike you severely, bringing desolation because of your sins. You will eat, but not be satisfied, for there will be hunger within you. What you acquire, you cannot save, and what you do save, I'll give to the sword. You will sow, but not reap. You will press olives, but not anoint yourself with oil. And you will tread grapes, but not drink the wine. The statues of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house have been observed, and you have followed their policies. Therefore, I will make you a desolate place in the city's residence, an object of contempt. You will bear the scorn of my people. How sad for me, for I am like one who, when the summer fruit has been gathered and after the gleaning of the grape harvest, finds no grape 
cluster to eat, no early fig which I crave. Faithful people have vanished from the land. There is no one upright among the people. All of them wait in ambush to shed blood. They hunt each other with a net. Both hands are good at accomplishing evil. The official and the judge demand a bribe. When the powerful man communicates his evil desire, they plot it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright is worse than a hedge of thorns. The day of your watchman, the day of your punishment is coming. At this time, their panic is here. Do not rely on a friend. Don't trust in a close companion. Seal your mouth from the woman who lies in your arms. Surely a son considers his father a fool. A daughter opposes her mother. And a daughter-in-law is against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. But I will look to the Lord I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will stand up. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I must endure the Lord's fury until he champions my cause and establishes justice for me. He will bring me into the light. I will see his salvation. Then my enemy will see, and she will be covered with shame, the one who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look at her in triumph. At that time, she will be trampled like the mud in the streets. A day will come for rebuilding walls. On that day, your boundary will be extended. On that day, people will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, even from Egypt to the Euphrates River, from sea to sea and mountain to mountain. Then the earth will become a wasteland because of its inhabitants and as a result of their actions. Shepherd your people with the staff, with your staff, the flock that is in your possession. They live alone in a woodland surrounded by pastures. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in ancient times. I will perform miracles for them as in the days of your exodus from the land of Egypt. Nations will see and be ashamed of all their power. They will put their hands over their mouths and their ears will become deaf. They will lick the dust like a snake. They will come trembling out of their hiding places like reptiles slithering on the ground. They will tremble in the presence of the Lord our God and they will stand in awe of you. Who is a God like you forgiving iniquity and passing over rebellion for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not hold on to his anger forever because he delights in faithful love. He will again have compassion on us and he will vanquish our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show loyalty to Jacob and faithful love to Abraham as you swore to our ancestors from days long ago. That's Micah's third message that the Lord has given him to proclaim. Let's go into that in detail. First thing we see is that God brings an indictment. God brings an indictment and it consists of the case against Judah. We saw that in the first four verses. He says, now listen to what the Lord is saying. Rise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your complaint. Listen to the Lord's lawsuit, you mountains and enduring foundations of the earth because the Lord has a case against his people and he will argue it against Israel. And then he brings, he says, my people, what have I done to you or how have I wearied you? Testify against me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from that place of slavery. I sent Moses, 
Aaron and Miriam ahead of you. This is my people. Remember what King Balak of Moab proposed, what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal, so that you may acknowledge the Lord's righteous acts. So Micah starts with listen. He's calling all the people together. The Lord is calling all the people. He says, listen to what the Lord is saying. This isn't my message. This is what the Lord's saying. God's calling the nation to rise up. He says, come, let's get together. Come, plead your case. I'm going to give you an opportunity. Come plead your case. Come tell me what happened that caused you to be the way that you are. In this courtroom, the witnesses, or, or the jury box, if you will, is going to be the mountains and the hills themselves. God's bringing a case against Israel, and he's going to argue it before them. In those times, what you would do is if you had a case against somebody, you would come to the city gates, and you would argue it before the elders. But the Lord is going to argue his case before the mountains and the hills because the corruption of the city and its leaders is complete and total. He's going to argue it before the mountains and the hills because the mountains and the hills were there before Israel was a nation. He's going to argue it before the mountains and the hills because the hills were there when God formed them. They've been there and they are an adequate witness. So God begins his case. He says, my people, what have I done to you? A lot of us are like Israel. We feel like God didn't do this or God should have done this or I wanted God to do this and he didn't. And so we're angry with God and we say that gives us the right to do whatever we want, to act however we want, to ignore him. He says, how have I wearied you? Literally, what burdens did I put on you? He says, come and testify against me. Come tell me what I did. And then he says, did I weary you when I brought you from Egypt out of your slavery? Did I weary you when I gave you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to go ahead of you as leaders before you to teach you and to show you how to be my people? says, not only have I not done evil to you, but rather I have done nothing but good for you. I redeemed you. I gave you godly leaders. He says, I'm going to, his promise to Israel was, I'm going to take you to a land and I'm going to give it to you. You're going to go dwell in cities that you didn't build. You're going to go and you're going to farm land that you didn't plant. And I'm going to bless you. And then God says, I also want you to remember. He says, my people, remember. And he brings up the encounter of Balak and Balaam. King Balak wanted to curse Israel. And he hired Balaam, who was a prophet, to do it. And if you're familiar with the story, this is where everybody refers to a talking donkey, by the way, because Balaam originally wasn't going to take the job, but Balak offered him so much money, he says, how could I pass that up? And so as he's going on the road, the Lord is seeking to strike him dead for doing it, and his donkey diverts off the trail like three times, and he's beating his donkey, and finally his donkey turns around and says, 
all I'm doing is trying to save your life, dude. He says, there's an angel right there that's waiting to strike you down. And then all of a sudden, Balaam's eyes were opened up and he saw it. But instead of the Lord taking his life, the Lord said, look, I know what you intend to do. Here's what you're gonna do. And so every time Balaam went to go open his mouth to prophesy a curse against Israel, he could do nothing but bless them. Three different times, he opened his mouth to curse them. And three different times, he could not curse. He could only say what God gave him to say. And that's something that Israel probably necessarily wasn't aware of. That's a spiritual battle that goes on in which God is already fighting for his people and they have no idea. And that happens so many times in our own life. There's a spiritual battle going on. I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's spiritual warfare going on. There's a battle that's going on and our God has gone on to fight for us beforehand. We think he's not doing enough for us where we think that he's forgotten about us or we think all, whatever it is that we think where we, we're like, God, you just don't care. He's preparing and he's making that victory in our life in that spiritual battle. If you remember the story of Balaam and Balak, what ends up happening is Balaam can't curse out of his mouth. So he says, here's what I'm going to do so I can earn my money. Here's how you curse Israel. Let them marry your wives. Get them to intermingle with the people. They will disobey God. They will rebel against God. And thus they will curse themselves. Because God told Israel, as long as you follow my statutes, I will bless you. If you choose to ignore, if you go off the wrong way, I will curse you. The only way for Israel to be cursed is if they bring the curse themselves. And so God says, remember that. And remember is a frequent word found in the Bible. In the book of Deuteronomy, it's found 14 times alone. And Deuteronomy, I don't know if you know what it translates to, but it means the law again. And it's used frequently for the Jews to teach their children all the miraculous deeds and all the mighty works of the Lord God. And it's good and it's necessary for God's people to know the past and remember with gratitude what God has done for them still the same for us today. If you have not begun to, to even journal the things that God has done in your life, you need to do that because you're going to have to refer back to that so that you can remember the faithfulness of God at every step of your life. When we start to doubt God, that's when we pull out that book and you can call it like your book of remembrance or whatever you want to call it, but you write down what God has done in your life, how he's answered your prayers. Because there, let me tell you what happens. We pray for something. We seek after something. God answers it. Later on, when we become weary of it, then we blame God. Why'd you give me this? And I have to be careful with this because the truth is, is we don't live in the past, but we have to learn from and we have to remember the past or we'll repeat the same mistakes. You say, well, that sounds like something I've heard before. That's because philosopher George Santayana wrote, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Because Israel forgot God's mercies, because they ignored his commandments, and they hardened their hearts 
rebelling against God's will. When they forget God's faithfulness, they turn away from God. When we forget God's faithfulness, we turn away from God. Psalm 106, 7. Our ancestors in Egypt did not grasp the significance of your wondrous works or remember your many acts of faithful love. Instead, they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. So God brings his indictment against them. Then we see the response of the people. How do we respond when God brings an indictment to us? When God convicts us of something going on in our life? How do we respond? Let me show you how they responded. Said, what should I bring before the Lord when I come bow down before God on high? Should I come before him with burnt offerings and year old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the offspring of my body for my own sin? Mankind, he's told each of you what is good and what it is that the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, and walk humbly with your God. Does Israel recognize and acknowledge the righteous acts of the Lord? No. The response of the people isn't to acknowledge, you know what, God, you're right. You did do all those things, and we totally forgot it. You know what they did instead? They complained, and the way that this is phrased This is Micah mocking them because God has given him insight to where their hearts are at. And here's where their hearts were at. They said, you ask too much, Lord. What? What am I supposed to do? What is it that you want? What do you want from me? It comes from a place of bitterness and resentment. They're they're saying, what do you want from me? Have Have you ever said that to God? Like, something's going on in your life and you're like, man, I do this and I do that and I do this and this is still happening. What do you want from me? It comes from a place of frustration because of a bitterness of not understanding and acknowledging God and his righteous ways. So they go, what do you want? You want burnt offerings? I'll bring you burnt offerings. How many do you want? Like 10,000? You want year old calves? You want, you want the baby cat? You want like the, the perfect calves? You want thousands of rams? What if I brought you 10,000 streams of water? Would that be enough, God? No, I'll, I'll bring you my firstborn. How about that? The accusation is this. In their heart, they say, nothing will satisfy God. When we start telling ourselves nothing will satisfy God, that we can't do anything good enough for God, and In all honesty, we really can't do anything to satisfy God. But this comes from a place in which we're saying that what God asks is too much and it's impossible and we can't do it. And so since we can't do it, we're not even going to try. We're not even going to meet God. The charge is, God, you're unreasonable, therefore we owe you nothing. You see, the rebellious heart looks to blame God for their sin because then they don't have to change. God does. When we're starting to expect God to change and not for us to change, we're in the wrong spot. It's almost as if you could hear them bargaining with God. God, 
what do we have to give to you so that we can still do this, what we want to do, what our flesh wants to do, but yet you'll be happy. And here's the truth. God doesn't bargain with sinners. There's no amount of sacrifice. There is not any sacrifice. It doesn't matter if you bring 10,000 rams. It doesn't matter if you bring your old calves. It doesn't matter if you bring God your firstborn. You cannot cleanse your own sin. You cannot excuse your own sin. That's what God is telling them. In your hearts, you think that you can make sin okay. You can't. God will never be okay with our sin. And then Micah says, look, God has told you what he requires. Here's the requirements. Act justly, love faithfulness, and walk humbly with your God. That's the whole law and prophets summed up right there. Now, Micah summed up the whole law and prophets into three things. That's because Jesus has much more wisdom and he can do it into two things. And that's love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second one is just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Look, Micah's saying, God doesn't want to know you through some rote ritual. He wants to know you from your heart. He wants your heart. But what the Lord is requiring, it's not burdensome. It's not difficult. And here's the most important thing. It's not a mystery. You're just choosing not to follow what he asked for. So we get to the second part of it. God will pronounce judgment. That's, that's the thing. God doesn't bargain with sinners. He won't excuse sin. There will be a judgment against sin. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. The voice of the Lord calls out to the city, and it's wise to fear your name. Pay attention to the rod and the one who ordained it. Are there still treasures of wickedness and the accursed short measure in the house of the wicked? So are these things still true? Yeah, nothing's changed. God says, can I excuse the wicked scales or bags of deceptive weights? The wealthy of the city, they're full of violence. Its residents speak lies. The tongues in their mouths are deceitful. Has anything changed? Can God excuse, excuse sin? Will he excuse deceitfulness? No, we, you do not want to get before God with the expectation that he's just going to excuse what you did. Like you could just say, oh, my bad. Like I totally didn't know God. You know, your, your word's hard to understand. I didn't know it. That's not going to fly. Nothing has changed. The people are wicked and God won't excuse it. So the voice of the Lord calls out to the city and he says, pay attention to the rod. Pay attention to the punishment that's coming. 
But don't just think on the punishment. He says also the one who ordained it. The one who brought it. He says the city's full of violence and lies. It's seeped in deception. The, the message is this. God may bring the rod. God ordained the rod, but it's one's own sin that brings their affliction from the rod upon themselves. It's not because God has disowned them. It's not because God is neglectful. It's because of our own sin. When we go through hard times, we go through affliction that comes through the rod. It's because of our own sin. This is why we tell our kids, look, this is going to hurt. But I have to do this. We would be wrong to not discipline our kids. That's what the rod represents, is God's discipline. And God disciplines those whom he loves. But it, he doesn't discipline just because. There's usually something that happens that we have chosen to do that is in direct violation of what he's called us to do. So nothing's changed. Discipline's coming. But here's the thing that I think he's surprising them with. Look, it's already begun. It says, as a result, I've begun to strike you severe, begun to strike you severely, bringing desolation because of your sins. You will eat and not be satisfied, for there will be hunger within you. What you acquire, you cannot save. What you do save, I'll give to the sword. You will sow, but not reap. You will press olives, but not anoint yourself with oil. You will tread grapes, but not drink the wine. It says, the statues of Omri and all the practice of Ahab's house have been observed. You've followed their policies. Therefore, I will make you a desolate place and the city's residence, an object of contempt. You will bear the scorn of my people. So as a result of sin, God has struck them severely. It's already started. But he told them this would happen. If you follow my statutes and keep my covenants, you will live long in the land. You will be prosperous. I will bless you. If you violate my covenant and my commandments, then I will curse you. You will have famine. You will have all this. I will no longer bless you. And he says, and if it gets bad enough, I will take the land from you. But they sought their sinful desires and they used deception to accomplish their sin. And because of that, when, when we go in that route, you know what God's going to do? God will make it so that we cannot enjoy the fruits of our sins. Amen? I love the fact that the Lord will not allow me to enjoy the fruits of sin. It seems enjoyable, but once we get in it, how many of us go, you know what? That wasn't at all what it promised to be. And that's because God will not allow you to enjoy the fruits of your sin. And so he says, you'll eat without satisfaction. You'll always be hungry. You'll never be satisfied. What you get from sin will never be enough. You'll always want more. You'll always go further. That's the thing about sin is it always takes you further than you wanted to go. And it, like, it just keeps taking you further than you want to go. Like, you, you go, oh, it's just this little bit. Right now it is. But you're never satisfied, so you go further. It is always going to cost you more than you want to pay. 
You think it's one price, but sin always has a deeper cost that you didn't know about. All of a sudden, you, you lost your family, you lost your friends, you lost your job, what have you, all because of a little sin. And you said, well, I can pay that little price. No, sin takes you further than you want to go and it costs you more than you wanted to pay. So as they acquire, they're still going to lose what they have. And God says, even if you don't lose what you have, guess what? I'm going to allow it to be taken away by the sword. Now, God, through Paul, spoke in Galatians. God's not mocked. What you sow, you'll also reap. That's spiritual. Here he's telling them, physically, you're going to sow for the harvest, but you will not reap. And what he's saying is, you won't be there to reap. You're going into exile. He says, this is because you've observed and you follow the policies of the statues, statutes of Omri and Ahab. Most of us know who Ahab is, right? He was the wicked king. He was married to Jezebel. We don't name our daughters Jezebel usually. I have met a few, so I'm not going to say nobody does that. But I'm saying that's not like first in the list, right? There's a reason for that. She, she was known as, as wicked. She, she, they, they helped murder thousands of God's prophets. Omri was Ahab's father. And he did the same thing. Their statutes, their statues, they were idols for the God of, known as Baal. They were murdered. The prophets of God were murdered under Ahab's reign so that they could worship Baal. Because of the rampant idolatry, because of the violence they endured, that they would now be the ridicule and they would be the scorn of other nations. In fact, Jeremiah, who wrote Lamentations, he writes this. He says, all who pass by scornfully clap their hands at you. They hiss and they shake their heads at daughter Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty and the joy of the whole earth? All your enemies open their mouths against you. They hiss and they gnash their teeth saying, we've swallowed her up. This is the day we've waited for. We've lived to see it. It's a pretty dark time, right? That indictment from God, that's pretty dark. It ends with the promise that you're going to be the scorn of other nations. You're going to go in. You're going to be completely taken over by other nations. You are no longer going to be your own nation. But God promises salvation. All of Micah chapter 7 is God's promise to them. After, after that that damning indictment against them for their sin, for their choices, for their rebellion. God promises salvation. And number one, what, what they need to know, it is not deserved. There is nobody who's going to stand before God in heaven who has salvation, who's going to say, I did it. It's all me. No one's going to be able to do that because everyone's going to be there through the grace, mercy of God because of the price that Christ paid on the cross. 
So Micah to the people, then Micah speaks out of, out of his own. He says, how sad for me. I'm one, I, I, I'm like one who, when the summer fruit has been gathered after the gleaning of the grape harvest, finds no grape cluster to eat, no early fig, which I crave. Faithful people have vanished from the land. There's no one upright among the people. All of them wait in ambush to shed blood. They hunt each other with a net. Both hands are good at accomplishing evil. The official and the judge, they demand a bribe. When the powerful man communicates his evil desire, they plot it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright is worse than a hedge of thorns. The day of your watchman, the day of your punishment is coming. At this time, their panic is here. You're like, how does that sound like salvation? Well, it's not. He's describing their situation. From among all the people, Micah says, I can find no redeeming amount of people in the land. He says, I searched for someone righteous. And it's like searching. And, and after the summer gleaning and the harvest and everything, you glean everything, you go to all the buckets and there's nothing to eat. He says, the faithful have vanished from the land. There's literally no good fruit. No one is upright. Everyone's waiting just to ambush each other. They hunt each other with nets to capture and to, and to keep. He said, and here's the thing, all the righteous, you know why the righteous are gone? Because the evil took them away. And when evil is allowed to sit there and lit, all the righteous are either consumed by the evil or they're driven away. So now all they have left is a city of evil. Only evil men are left. And he says, and, and, and they're great at committing evil. Most of us in here, right? We're, we're all either left-handed or right-handed, right? Whether we, whether we play sports or, or we do activities, we're, we're left or right-hand dominant, right? Micah says, they're so good at committing evil they're exceptional in using both their hands. They are ambidextrous at committing evil. And then he says, the official and the judge demand a bribe. That's like the one who's supposed to be watching the other. They get together and they say, hey, we could both make some money here. That's how bad it's gotten. It's a good thing in, in our government with all the checks and balances that they're not all getting together and starting to... Uh, take bribes and things and, and work together. And it's a good thing that's not happening. I'll tell you, the Bible is nothing but true. Solomon said it in, in uh, Ecclesiastes. What's been done has been done before and will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun, especially when it comes to the sinfulness of men. The powerful man communicates his evil desire and someone is there to plot it out with him. He goes, hey, that sounds like a great idea. Let's do it. He says, the most upright among them is worse than a hedge of thorns. My son almost quit playing golf yesterday because he reached for his ball and stuck his finger on a thorn, on, on, on a mesquite thorn. It punctured his finger so bad. He's like, this hurts so bad. He was ready to, he's like, can I just go home? <laughs> 
And that's the most upright person, is hugging that mesquite bush, that, that just hug that nice little thorn, thorn briar, you know? It's, it's comfortable. The point is this. They don't deserve the salvation that God is about to promise them. There is nothing redeeming about them. And you know what's true? There's nothing redeeming about me. There is nothing redeeming about any of you when Christ died on the cross to offer salvation. There is no redeeming quality in us that does not come from Christ Jesus himself. Abraham pled for the righteous of Sodom, right? He said, Lord, if there be 50 people that are righteous, you won't destroy it. God goes, no, not for 50. And then remember, Abraham goes, oh, wait, it's Sodom. Lord, if there's 40 righteous. And he continues on until he gets to 10. And God says, yeah, for 10, I won't destroy it. And Abraham goes, okay, I'm, I'm most certain there's at least 10 righteous in Sodom. But here, there's no one righteous. And there's no one to plead their case either. Here's the other thing about God's promised salvation. It comes from no one else. It's not deserved, but it comes from no one else either. God says, don't rely on a friend. Don't trust a close companion. Seal your mouth from the woman who lies in your arms. Surely a son considers his father a fool. A daughter opposes her mother and the daughter-in-law is against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Micah says, but I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. That day of punishment, that day of panic, it's coming and it is now here. And Micah says, who are you going to rely on? If all the people are wicked, who are you going to rely on? He says, don't rely on a friend, not even a close companion, not their lover and not even their family would save them, let alone could save them. And you say, well, oh, that won't happen. You don't know my family. I have two examples for you. One happened a long time ago in World War II when people turned in their own family, when people turned in their own neighbors to the Nazis. And the second one happened just like it in El Paso. The city of El Paso even set up a hotline it was the COVID reporting hotline so you could report people that were not staying in their house. So you could report people that had people over so that you could turn people in. There was family turning in family for that. People will do that. You cannot rely on people. None of them can be trusted because they're all unrighteous. But Micah says, there's one I trust. I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation and my God will hear me. The psalmist says, I wait for the Lord. I wait and I put my hope in his word. Isaiah 25 prophesies on that day, it will be said, look, this is our God. We've waited for him and he has saved us. 
This is the Lord. We waited for him. Let's rejoice and be glad in his salvation. When no one else can be counted on, you can always count on the Lord. There's gonna be times in your life where you're gonna be in that dark place and you're gonna be like, there's no one I can count on. You can count on the Lord. You must count on the Lord. Micah knew that God would hear him. The psalmist in Psalm 4.3 says, know that the Lord has set apart the faithful for himself and the Lord will hear when I call to him. If you are in Christ Jesus, by faith, you are counted among the faithful. God has separated you apart and listens to you especially in your times of trouble. He will hear when you call to him. You know what the greatest thing about God's promised salvation is though? Our enemies can't stop it. Our enemies cannot stop it. And there is an enemy who, if he could stop it, would. Verse eight, it says, do not rejoice over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will stand up. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I've sinned against him, I must endure the Lord's fury until he champions my cause and establishes justice for me. He will bring me into the light. I will see his salvation. There or then my enemy will see and she will be covered with shame. The one who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look at her in triumph at that time and she will be trampled like mud in the street. Micah says to the enemies, don't look to be rejoicing here. It may look like God's people have fallen and he describes their situation as though they're sitting in darkness. And the darkness of that judgment coming from their indictment, but the Lord will be their light. The Lord will be our light. Though it looks like we have fallen, we will stand. Now, Micah's not denying anything. Indeed, they've sinned. He says, We have to endure the Lord's fury. And it's a darkness that we walk through. And it's the darkness that Israel has to walk through. They've rejected their Messiah. They're walking through darkness right now. They're, they're under that judgment and indictment right now. However, it will not last. It only lasts until the Lord champions his cause and establishes justice. Our enemies may rejoice over our situation. Right now in this world, evil looks to triumph. Right now, it's their time to triumph. Soon, it, it's going to be changed, and it'll be even more so their time to triumph. It's said that the evil one is given an hour. He has his hour in which he comes, and he will terrorize the entire earth in such a way that we've never known before. That's known as the time period during the tribulation in which he will gather, and he'll set up his antichrist, and all the nations that will be raised up to rebel against Jesus Christ. But in that day, it won't last. They may think that they're standing against God, but they can't. Nobody can. Nobody can cause the plans of God to fail. Nobody can stop the plans of God. And when he stands up, 
the Lord will bring them from darkness into the light and they will see their salvation. When we either die or the Lord calls us home at the rapture, we will see our salvation. Nobody can stop it. Our enemies can't come around and give us a bear hug and keep us from being called up to the Lord. When we die, our enemies can't like do anything to defile our grave or anything like that that keeps us from going to heaven. Because we go to heaven and, and we're called to the Lord based on one thing, our faith in Jesus Christ alone because that's what the Lord has ordained and set up. That's what he's chosen. That's what he sent. That's what he's provided. Our enemies will be silenced. Those who said, oh, you're a fool for following God. Oh, you and your God. Oh, this and that. You, don't ha you just follow God because he's a crutch. No, he's like the entire hospital. As, as, as it looks like we're being defeated, our enemies gloat and they laugh and they say, God's unable to save. God can't do that. Micah says on that day, they're gonna see that our God is like any, uh, uh, unlike any other, bringing us from darkness to light, bringing us from a fallen point to standing in him. That's what it's promised in Romans. Paul says that we will all be made to stand because he is able to make us stand. And they will see us go from being lost to having salvation. Last, there is a day coming. There's a day coming. A day will come for rebuilding your walls. On that day, your boundary will be extended. On that day, the people will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, and even the, from Egypt to the Euphrates River, from sea to sea and mountain to mountain. Then the earth will become a wasteland because of its inhabitants as a result of their actions. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock that is in your possession. They live alone in a woodland surrounded by pastures. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in ancient times. I will perform miracles for them as in the days of your exodus from the land of Egypt. Nations will see and be ashamed of all their power. They will put their hands over their mouth and their ears will become deaf. They will lick the dust like a snake and they will come trembling out of their hiding places like reptiles slithering on the ground. Then they will tremble in the presence of the Lord our God. They will stand in awe of you. This describes none other than the coming day, the day of the Lord. The earth is going to become like a wasteland in the great tribulation. Read about it in the book of Revelation. There, there's so much devastation going on on the earth. It's going to look apocalyptic because that's the book of apocalypse. That was a joke. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> He says that the Micah and Israel, they long for that day. It hasn't, it, it's not happening yet, but it is coming. That's the promise of the Lord. It's a day in which they will rebuild their wall. He's saying that you will be restored. You will extend your boundaries. The nation of Israel will be again. Not only are they going to come out of Babylon, but in those days, the last days, they will come out of the dark days of the tribulation into the light of God's salvation as Jesus Christ comes back to rule and reign. And he'll perform miracles for the nations. The nations will be ashamed. All the nations of the earth, as wicked and as, as they are, they're, they're going to be ashamed. Even though they have supposed great power. It says Christ comes back and from the word of his own mouth, they're defeated. And they're going to tremble in the presence of the Lord our God. No one is going to stand before God and be like unshaken. 
They're going to stand in awe of our God because no one is like our God. That's what Micah says. He says, he forgives sin. Who's the God like you forgiving iniquity, passing over rebellion for the remnant of his inheritance. He doesn't hold on to his anger forever because he delights in faithful love. Our God, he brings an indictment of sin and a verdict of guilty, but he also provides salvation. He forgives iniquity. He passes over the rebellion. God forgives sin. If there's no other message that you hear about God other than the fact that he pronounces judgment, know that he also forgives sin. He doesn't hold his anger forever. He finds delight in faithful love. His faithful love is has said love. It's an unfailing love. Why does he do this? God is full of compassion. Micah says he will again have compassion on us. He will vanquish our iniquities. He, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You see, God brings judgment, but he also has compassion. And he vanquishes the iniquities. You know that God vanquished our iniquities? For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, when Christ died on the cross, he vanquished our iniquity. He defeated sin. And his compassion, it led him to do something about the sin that was killing us. And God dealt with it in such a way, it's described as he cast it into the sea. And did you know that there are some depths of the ocean in which it is so deep, light cannot penetrate the surface. You cannot see. Literally, God, and when you have faith in Christ Jesus and your sins are forgiven, he has put your sins in the one place on earth that they cannot be seen. Light cannot penetrate. Vision is impossible. And it's because God is faithful in love. And this is the promise that he says, you will show loyalty to Jacob and faithful love to Abraham as you swore to, your, to our ancestors from days long ago. This is where their hope lies. It lies in the word of God because the word of God promised to Jacob and to Abraham. You see, God deals with sins but he also brings redemption and salvation because of his faithfulness and his loyalty. And it's not owed to anyone. It's established because of the promises that he himself made. And God fulfills his word and God is trustworthy. We need to remember that God is long suffering towards sin, right? We live in a time right now that is a time of grace. He's long suffering towards sin. It said that God is not slack concerning his promise, but he's long suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to salvation. That's the time that we live in right now, the grace period. But there, there's coming a time where sin will be judged. God cannot and will not overlook sin always, and it will be judged. And when wickedness has surrounded us and wickedness has overtaken around us, we can't look within that same wickedness. Just as there was none righteous within Israel, guess what? There's none righteous within this world that we can look to. We have to look to God because only God brings the change that is necessary. But understand this, God will pardon those who come to him. He's going to show unfailing love because he delights in showing his own faithfulness. 
He vanquished the sins through his son, Jesus, when he died on the cross, and he will show you compassion. He will throw your sins into the depths of the ocean if you come to him through Jesus Christ. Who is like the Lord who shows compassion and forgiveness to those who've sinned against him directly, to those whom he can bring an indictment against? The call is to trust him because he is trustworthy. The worship team is going to come up and they're going to sing one last song. And I, I want to invite you during this song to consider that that you might feel like you're in a dark place right now, but it, to move from that darkness to light, it's not anything that you can do. You have to do that through Christ. You have to trust that Christ is the one who brings that change that's necessary. And I'm gonna invite you to take that leap of faith, to put your faith in Christ, to bring you out of the indictment that darkness of indictment of your sin, of your rebellion, of where you're at, and trust in the trustworthiness of God that he has forgiven your sin, that he has dealt with your sin, and he has removed your sin as far from you as the east is from the west. You do that simply by coming and, and acknowledging that you are a sinner, that you know that you're guilty before God, and that there's nothing that you can do but trust in the name of Jesus for salvation and forgiveness. And you simply ask him to forgive you of your sin, to be your savior. The Bible teaches that all who come and call upon the name of Jesus Christ shall be saved. And if that's you, we invite you to not leave here this morning without coming to Christ for salvation. And if you have given your life to Christ, and maybe you feel like you're in a dark place, Hold on to and trust the promise of God that you will ultimately be saved. He is not leaving you out to dry. He's not hanging you up to never use you again. There might be a time and a period of discipline, but ultimately his promise is your salvation, your perfection, your everlasting life with him forever. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your prophets that you've sent. We thank you for the prophet Micah to teach us to, to declare who is like our God who does these things who takes us from one side and puts us on the other side that's better nothing of ourselves it's all from you God and we thank you for that we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for us and it's in his name that we pray amen